Good morning to you all. Thank you very much, worship team. Thank you, Mark. If you would, this morning, um, turn to two scriptures. You might want to put a finger in one or a finger in both. But we're going to start in Matthew 1, then we're going to go to Luke chapter 1. I'm excuse me, just the opposite. Start in Luke 1, then we'll go to Matthew chapter 1. Um, one of the things that we have said in the past is that Jesus is the double cure. And you may have wondered, what is the double cure about? Well, obviously, double means two. And it actually means several things. But one of the things it means is that Jesus did the two things for us that we could not do for ourselves. Uh, one thing we could not do for ourselves was to erase our guilt, uh, die for our own sin and still uh, survive that. But the other thing is to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law, to do everything God requires. Because the reality is, as Eric read during the Advent reading, God loves the righteous. And the righteous are those who do everything that God commands. And so, if you think about that, that's a very intimidating thing. If we recognize that we are not naturally righteous. And so, what we're going to talk about this morning is God's answer to that problem. Uh, when people say, nobody's perfect, uh, we should say, you're right, and that's a huge problem. And yet, the answer has been provided in Jesus. And so, we're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verses 18 and following, and then we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, because both of these passages fit very, very well together, and hopefully you'll see that as we go through it this morning. So let me begin. Actually, I'm just going to start in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. If you would now look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for a fresh work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through your word. Please meet the deepest needs of our heart for you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted you to see that these two passages fit together uh, very well, obviously, as you would expect. In Luke chapter 1, just prior to what we read, is the account of the angel appearing to Zacharias uh, in the temple. And he tells Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby. Now, Elizabeth is very old, and they've been praying for children had been praying for children for a long time. It's not clear whether or not they had given up praying or not, but it's very possible they had given up praying for children at that point because she was old, she was barren, uh, past the time when you could expect to become pregnant. And so the angel comes, Gabriel, and says, uh, your wife is going to have a baby. And uh, she does get pregnant, and for the first five months, she sort of, uh, stays out of the flow of traffic and just kind kind of uh, hides away, seems to be the implication. 
And it says in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. That's where the sixth month comes in. And so Elizabeth has been pregnant uh, five months. In the sixth month, um, Mary receives a visit from the angel Gabriel as well. And the angel tells her that she's going to have a baby as, as well. But she's not old and barren. She's young and uh, technically not fully married. She's engaged. And at that point in time, uh, they would call that betrothed, which means she made a promise that was legally binding in that day and time. But she wasn't living with her husband. And there they had no normal marital relations that could cause her to expect to become pregnant. And so therefore, she wonders how this is going to happen. And uh, the angel explains that God is going to enable her to have a child apart from the um, normal way it happens. And so uh, she hears also from the angel that her cousin, Elizabeth, is pregnant has been pregnant. And so after this visit of the angel, apparently right away she heads out. And apparently uh, at some point between the time that the angel uh, appeared to her and the time that she shows up at Elizabeth's house, she was pregnant. And so she walks in the door and Elizabeth uh, praises God uh, for the mother of her Lord. And so, excuse me, Mary stays three months with with Elizabeth. And it's not clear whether or not she stayed until John was born or if she left right before he was born. Uh, Some people think she may have left right before because the birth of a child usually brings people in, right? And um, she went to see Elizabeth maybe in part to... Um, get away, get out of sight, and maybe she wanted to continue to be out of sight for a while. So she may have left right before. We're not sure about that. But the reality is, by the time she got back to Nazareth, she would have been about three months along. And by that time, she could have been showing, or very soon after that, she would have been showing. And so in Matthew 1, it says that she was found to be with child, which means... She was showing. She got back to Nazareth and boom, she begins to evidence that she is pregnant. And one way or the other, we don't know how, Joseph finds out. But he has no idea that this is anything different than what he would expect, that she's been unfaithful. And so he wrestles with what to do. And then the angel comes to him and and tells him what God has done that she is indeed a virgin and is going to have a child. And this wouldn't be just any child. This would be the one prophesied in Isaiah 7.14 who would be Emmanuel, God with us. And so that's what we find in these two passages. And that's what we want to think about this morning as we celebrate the Lord's birth again this year. Now, obviously... There might have been times in your life where you've walked up to somebody and said something like, are you expecting? And hopefully that went well when you you asked that question. Um, But you probably haven't walked up to anybody and and asked the question, are you unexpecting? Uh, Which is the way I want us to think a little bit about these two women. You've got Elizabeth, who's old and barren and beyond 
uh, the time when you would expect to be able to bear a child, and you've got uh, Mary who has no relations with uh, men that could cause her to expect to become pregnant, and yet they both become pregnant unexpectedly. So you could say that they were expecting unexpectedly. And that is important for us to think about in this sense that both the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus were promised in the Old Testament. So what is God doing in these two unexpecting women who become expecting women? He's fulfilling his promises. He's fulfilling his promises through the unexpected. That is a huge life lesson is that God fulfills his promises often in ways that we would never expect. Now, it's not unexpected in terms of what the Bible says, because both um, Zacharias and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary were godly people who probably knew their Bibles better than most people. But they still didn't see everything that was there. They didn't understand all that God was going to do, they certainly didn't understand how they were going to be a part of what God was going to do. And so um, God was fulfilling his promises through the unexpected. And so we can begin by just asking ourselves the question, are we expecting God to keep his promises to us through unexpected events in our lives? Maybe even un- unwanted events in our lives. Um, Zacharias and Elizabeth wanted to be pregnant much sooner. They probably would not have chosen uh, to wait until they were both very, very old to have a baby. Um, Mary uh, probably would have rather been pregnant after she was married because you can bet there was all kinds of gossip around town once she began to show because nobody else would have expected that she was somehow supernaturally going to conceive a baby. That doesn't happen, right? And so these were situations that were probably unwanted and yet wanted. Unwanted in terms of the difficulties of the situation, but wanted because of what God was going to do through the situation. Isn't that where we typically are and should be by God's grace, uh, recognizing that our circumstances are in some sense unwanted and yet wanted because we know that God has promised to work all things together for our good. He's promised to keep his promises to us. And what's happening to us every day is somehow the result of God keeping his promises to every child of God, every one of us. And so that's meant to be an encouragement. So I'd like for us to think about uh, the Christmas story in light of that this morning. And first of all, I'd just like to begin by uh, talking about the fact that we need to believe in miracles. Uh, Obviously, uh, Mary was going to and did conceive the inconceivable. She was going to become pregnant through unusual circumstances. And even Elizabeth was going to, just like Sarah was going to have a child uh, past the time you would expect. And that's why the angel could say in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
If God promised you something, he will not be thwarted. He's going to keep his promises. He will do whatever needs to be done. There is nothing that can keep him from doing that. The only thing you could argue, based on what Scripture says, is impossible is for God not to be God and for God to lie and not keep his promises. That's what's impossible. And so it says that uh, in verse 34 of Luke 1, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And then obviously in Matthew 1, uh, we see verse 23, it tells us that the uh, promise had been given and God was fulfilling that promise in the life of Mary. when it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, you find out that the situation is the king of Syria and the king of Israel were going to attack the king of Judah. God comes through Isaiah to the king of Judah and tells him you don't have to be afraid of those two kings because very shortly I'm going to deal with them and I'm going to protect you because you're part of the line of David, the king through which the Messiah was going to come. And so uh, God gives a sign to Ahaz who didn't want a sign because he wasn't a believer. But God gives a sign to Ahaz and says, this is a sign. A virgin will uh, conceive, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which was a way of saying, I'm going to make sure that the messianic line of David survives. So I'm going to deal with these two kings that are threatening to wipe out the line of David. But he also says, he says, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, which is basically a way of saying, um, I'm going to do this in a time frame that would be understood uh, from the time of a, a boy's birth to when he would understand right and wrong. In that amount of time, I'm going to deal with these two kings. So in one sense, the prophecy uh, says something about what God was going to do about those two kings to protect the line of David. But ultimately, and most importantly, he was talking about the birth of Jesus through the Virgin Mary. And so we have this played out for us in the New Testament. And the, the doctrine of the virgin birth is very, very important. Uh, there are those who think they can be Christians without believing in the virgin birth. There are, there, are, there are pastors and there are priests who will deny the virgin birth and yet somehow continue to call themselves Christians. And yet, if you read things like the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, it says the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. And so the historic confession of the church of Jesus Christ is that he was born of a virgin. And yet in our day and time, people have a hard time with the idea of miracles, the idea of something outside of what we can see, hear, touch, and feel, and those kinds of things. And we tend to use the term miracle loosely, um, 
You know, if you're going shopping, Christmas shopping, and you go to the mall and you find a close parking spot, you call it a miracle. It's not a miracle. That might be a kind providence of God, but it's not a miracle. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, a miracle is an interference with nature by supernatural power, which means if God creates a brand new parking spot up front just for you, that's a miracle. Because it happened apart from the, um, you know, the people who own the parking lot doing it. And so um, a miracle is something that happens outside of what we would expect normally and in nature. There are two objections to the virgin birth that I just want to highlight that uh, C.S. Lewis also addresses. One of the object- objections is um, the people in that day and time really didn't understand how babies came into the world. And that's why they talked about a virgin birth, is because they really didn't understand the laws of nature. They didn't understand how that worked. And so because of that, they could talk about these things and call it a miracle when it was just a working out of the natural processes. And um, there was a time that C.S. Lewis was sitting in his office around Christmas time, and a friend of his came in who was an unbeliever, and they could hear some carolers down uh, below them uh, singing. They were singing a Christmas carol that talked about the uh, birth, virgin birth of Jesus. And the unbelieving friend said to C.S. Lewis, isn't it good that we now know better than they did? And Lewis said, what do you mean? He said, well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? And C.S. Lewis looked at him and said, Don't you think that they knew that? That is the whole point. In another place, he he talks about the fact that the, the reality that Joseph wrestled with what to do is evidence that he understood where babies came from. He understood how it happened. And he knew that he had not been involved, even though he was her betrothed. And so because he fully understood how babies come into the world on a, the human level, uh, that's testimony to the fact that the ancients um, were not in the dark about that. It wasn't something in the water and stuff like that. We used to joke about that at coast. There must be something in the water, so many people having babies and stuff like that. And so the, the story makes it clear that Joseph knew that there was only one way, normally, naturally, that this could happen. And so uh, in this discussion, in this um, God in the dock discussion that C.S. Lewis has with this other person, this man is talking about the fact that, well, doesn't science prove that the virgin birth is impossible? You know, we've come a lot further along than those people back in the first century, and we know so much more. And, uh, you know, doesn't modern science disprove that? And um, C.S. Lewis responds by saying, don't you see that science could never uh, show anything of the sort? Science could not disprove the virgin birth. Why? He says, because science studies nature. And the question is whether anything besides nature exists, anything outside. How could you find that out by simply studying nature? So the whole point is that something happened very special at Christmas time 
2,000 years ago. It wasn't a natural thing. It was a supernatural thing. And so, yes, science doesn't have any room for the supernatural because super means beyond the natural. What does not normally happen? But that doesn't mean that there isn't anything or anyone who is supernatural, beyond the natural. Well, the other objection that people have is that, you know, this sounds like those uh, Greek myths where the god uh, commits adultery with a human woman. And so C.S. Lewis addresses that, and he says, um, he argues that God is involved in the miracle of life whenever and wherever it occurs, whether among humans or even the animal kingdom. Therefore, if the intervention with Mary is considered adultery, then God must be accused of adultery with all women and even animals. So what is he saying there? He's saying that, yes, there's a natural process, but that's not the ultimate reason why people have babies. It's because God gives life through a natural process. Your eating and drinking is a natural process, but that is not what keeps you alive. There are plenty of people that are very scrupulous about exercise and diet, and and they die young. Why is that? Because God is in charge of life and death. God is the one who gives life. He's the one who takes life. And so, therefore, uh, yes, there are natural processes involved, and we shouldn't, obviously, we expect certain things to happen or not, but ultimately... Uh, there's a reason why we thank God for babies. It's because God gives babies. It's a gift of God. He works through the natural process. And so C.S. Lewis could say it is the instrument by which he normally creates man. No woman ever conceived a child without him. And so what God did in the womb of Mary was special but it is not totally unrelated to what he does all the time in terms of bringing life into the world. But ultimately, all of this talk about the the necessity of believing in the virgin birth is tied to things like what we see in Jeremiah 23, when it says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name which he will be by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The importance of the virgin birth is tied to the name of Jesus, which means the character of Jesus, whether or not we can truly say, he is my righteousness or not. The second thing is to think in terms of needing all that to happen, uh, that the unexpected thing that God did was to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. All the other world religions are different from true Christianity in that in true Christianity, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In the other world religions, you have to do what the the God tells you to do in order to have whatever peace or joy or happiness or heaven is promised. You have to do the five pillars of Islam or whatever it might be or you have to meditate, or whatever, in whatever religion it might be, if you're going to achieve, quote, heaven. And yet, true Christianity is all about what God does for us in the person of Jesus. 
And so what God did in sending a Savior was to send someone who would provide what we need, a perfect record of righteousness, because God requires righteousness to enter heaven. You understand the only thing, well, the forgiveness of your sins isn't the only thing you need to get into heaven. You have to have a positive record of doing everything that God requires. If we were simply forgiven, we'd be back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And we'd have to, in a sense, earn our righteousness. So Jesus comes and does both of those things that we need. And we'll talk about next week his coming to die in our place. But right now we're talking about the fact that he came to live in our place. And that's why the virgin birth is so important. It says in Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Child. A child set apart, but also a child perfect, sinless. In Matthew 1, verse 20, it says that the Lord appeared to him in a dream, the angel of the Lord, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be holy, just like God is holy. Indeed, because he is God with us. He's going to be perfect. Um, Later on, John the Baptist and Jesus are going to meet up. And John is going to be baptizing. And Jesus is going to come to him to be baptized. And Jesus is going to say, I'm I'm ready to be baptized. And John is going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And what does Jesus say? He says, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness means doing what God commands. God commanded his people to be baptized in repentance and and uh, through the ministry of John the Baptist. And so Jesus says, I'm going to do this because God commands it. My father commands it. So I will do whatever my father commands. And he did it not because he wasn't already doing that up in heaven, so to speak. He and the father are one, but he did it in our place. He did it uh, for us. Uh, one of the things that theologians will also talk about is the active obedience of Christ. And they'll talk about the fact that Jesus being holy, this is also in the 1689 Baptist Confession, Jesus being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He has accomplished all the things that God required by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. And so the first point was we need to believe in miracles. Otherwise, we cannot believe in the virgin birth. And therefore, we cannot believe in Jesus as being God and Jesus as being righteous. And therefore, we have no salvation. Secondly, we must believe in the need for obedience. We we need to believe that we actually need to be perfectly obedient. When I mentioned earlier uh, the reality that nobody's perfect, that's so true. And yet we say that as if that's no big deal. 
And yet from God's perspective and from the ministry of Jesus' perspective, it's crucial to know that it is a huge issue that nobody's perfect. And so uh, there's an illustration I've used before. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who's gone to be with the Lord, uh, tells this story about early on in his teaching career. He was teaching an Old Testament class. You might remember this story. It's like 250 freshmen. He's teaching them, and he tells them, you've got three papers uh, this semester. Uh, one's due on September 30th, uh, one on October 30th, and one due on November 30th. You need to write these papers, get them in on time. If you don't, you get an F. And as you might recall in the story, uh, initially, uh, the first paper comes due, and about um, 25 students don't have their papers ready, and and so they go to uh, Professor Sproul, and they beg him for mercy, and they say, you know, we're just having a hard time uh, making the transition from high school to college, and we just haven't budgeted our time right. Would you give us a few extra days? He says, okay, I'll give you three extra days to get your paper in. Next time around, in October, the paper becomes due, and um, there's 50 people that don't have their paper ready, and, and they, they come to uh, Professor Spruill, and they say, you know, uh, we, uh, we're busy with homecoming and these other things, and uh, could you just give us a little more time? And he said, okay, I'll, I'll give, you, give you three days, but don't let it happen again. And so then in um, November... The third paper comes due, and there's 150 students uh, that don't have their paper in on time. And so uh, he realizes that, Professor Spruill realizes that um, there's something interesting going on here because more and more people are beginning to uh, shirk uh, the standard uh, that was given at the beginning of the semester. And so he pulls out his grade book. And he begins going down his grade book name by name. And he says, Johnson, do you have your paper? And Johnson says, don't worry about it, Prof. I'll have it for you in a couple days. And he says, Johnson, F. He goes down to the next guy, Nicholson, and other guys. And he's going down the list, and they don't have their paper. And he says, F, F, F. And then somebody from the back of the room says, wait a minute, that's not fair. And he says, um, I think it was Fitzgerald. Is that you? Let me see. What did I give you last time? Wasn't your paper uh, late last time too? Uh, F, that time and this time. And everybody is just falling out of their seat, having a cow, as we like to say, because the professor is holding them to the standard. That was the standard all along. You don't get your paper in on time. You get an F. R.C. Sproul basically said, you know what? You guys who are arguing for fairness are, need to understand that what you're really asking for uh, is justice. And that's why what would be just is for me to give you an F. And he goes on to uh, tell the fact that he talked to his class about what was happening in the class. And he said what was happening in the class reminded him of a song from a musical called My Fair Lady, I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. And he said, you guys have grown accustomed to my grace. I gave you a few extra days a couple times, and now you 
you go from being amazed the first time that I was willing to give you a few extra days uh, to assuming it the second time to demanding it the third time. Progression here. Amazed, assume, demand. And he says that's just the way we are with regard to God. God is so gracious to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve day in and day out. And then we're surprised if we stand before him on judgment day and he says this was the standard. Just because I've shown you grace doesn't mean there is no standard. Doesn't mean there isn't justice that has to be served. Doesn't mean you don't have to fulfill that standard. And that's what our world doesn't understand. There are a lot of people who will in some way recognize that God must be good because I enjoy so many good things. And yet they assume that goodness and that they enjoy and the grace that they experience means there is no standard that has to be met. And the reality is there is a standard that has to be met. And Jesus is the only one who's met that standard. And he met it for us. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus came to do what he did so that we might be righteous in the sight of God, that we might be declared righteous. Because the reality is all of us who are Christians are not righteous, not in the sense of fully obeying God, but we're declared righteous. On what basis? On the basis of the righteousness of Christ. That's the problem that the Roman Catholic Church has with the Protestant Church. The Roman Catholic Church says you can't call someone righteous unless they are. And therefore, in the Roman Catholic Church, you can't be assured of your salvation until God declares you righteous once you go to heaven or not or get through purgatory or whatever it might be. And so they balk at the idea that people who are still sinful here and now can actually believe that God declares them righteous. And that's why Martin Luther would say that we as Christians are declared righteous because of Jesus. Because we have been united with Jesus and he's given us his gift of righteousness. And that's the third thing. We must, in the sense that God calls us all to receive the gift of righteousness, which is, in a sense, unexpecting the undeserved, that God gives us a gift of righteousness that we certainly do not deserve. In Luke 1, 54, uh, Mary is praising God and talks about the fact that he has given help to Israel, his servant. That help is Jesus, and a huge part of that help is the fact that he is our righteousness. It says in Matthew 1, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So in what sense does he do that? In the sense that he both dies to take the penalty that our sins deserve, but he also gives us a righteousness that allows us to enjoy 
all the blessings of the righteous. Um, in the 1689 Confession, it talks about um, that very idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. If you're an accountant, you probably are familiar with uh, the idea of imputation. It means I'm going to put this to your account. I'm going to put this in your account. I'm going to give it to you as credited to you. And that's the way this has been talked about. The imputation of Christ's righteousness is, as it says in the confession, that God doesn't infuse righteousness into us. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches us, or teaches, that God in, God makes you righteous and then he calls you righteous. He infuses righteousness in you. The reformers said, no, no, God doesn't infuse righteousness in you and then call you righteous. He calls you righteous before you are righteous. But what he does is he credits the righteousness of Christ to your account. He says he, It says he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. They define faith this way. Faith is that which receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness as the only instrument of justification. Um, in Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul says this, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, whereas through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. He's contrasting Adam and Jesus. He's saying Adam sinned. And from that one sin, everyone became sinners. But out of many sins, Jesus, through his one act of obedience, means his whole life, a continual act of obedience, many are made righteous, all those who will believe. And so we must receive the gift of righteousness if we're going to receive the blessings of the righteous. Um, John Bunyan, we've talked about him before, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, became a Christian after he was married, um, joined a church, and then was overwhelmed with the sense that he may have committed the unpardonable sin. His assurance um, wasn't something that he could find. And he said for two years it was terrifying. He thought that he was going to die and be separated from God forever. And then he says that one day he was walking through a field and all of a sudden something dawned on him. He said... One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there was my righteousness. He goes on to say, it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. He says at that point, he went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. 
when you have a bad day and your heart is in a bad frame, does that destroy your joy? Does it call you to question your salvation? Does it cause you to um, be overwhelmed with your sin? If it does, what is the answer? Stop looking for your righteousness in yourself and realize your righteousness is outside of you. That's why Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. Righteousness outside this world and righteousness outside my world. An alien righteousness that my righteousness is in heaven and his name is Jesus. So on your worst days, that's where the gift of righteousness becomes so important. Otherwise, you can live your life trying to earn God's favor, trying to perform well enough, and beating yourself up every day because you don't measure up. Because the reality is you don't measure up, and you never will. I don't measure up, and I never will. And so how can people who don't measure up have joy? Joy to the world. So we recognize that it's been given to us. It's a gift. It's a gift of righteousness. That's why it says in Jeremiah 33, 16, In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she, speaking of Jerusalem, speaking of the people of God, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's the good news of Christmas. And that's the good news of of the gospel. I mentioned uh, last week the song Mary Did You Know and maybe applying that to Harry Did You Know on the uh, side of the street. The first uh, verse says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. So when we talk about saving sons and daughters, we need to recognize that salvation is from something and to something. It's from what we deserve to what he deserves. Jesus dies in our place to rescue us from what we deserve that we might enjoy what he deserves. What does he deserve? He deserves the blessings of the righteous because he's righteous. He deserves everything God has promised to the righteous. That's what Jesus deserves. And he says, I gladly give it to you. And what is that? Everything in the universe. Everything in the universe. I give it to you freely. It's my gift to you. That same song goes on to say, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Perfect lamb. If you read the Old Testament, it couldn't be just any old lamb to be sacrificed. It had to be a perfect lamb. And indeed, Jesus is the perfect lamb. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. And so there are two questions uh, that I want us to ask as we close here. Uh, so if you would bow your heads and let's just pray together for a minute and, and just ask yourself these two questions. One is, 
Are you expecting God to keep his promises to you through the unexpected? Obviously, we've talked a little bit about the fact that Joseph and Mary, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth were those who found God keeping his expected promises through unexpected circumstances. And the question for us as Christians is, are we doing that today? Every day when things go unexpectedly, are we believing that God is keeping his expected promises to us through the unexpected so that we can consider it all joy, count it all joy, as James says. And then secondly, have you received the gift of Christ's righteousness? Are you depending on your own righteousness? Are you depending on your own efforts and your own merit for the love of God, for the acceptance of God? Or have you received the gift of his righteousness by receiving him? If you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you receive that gift of righteousness. Father, we just pray now as we include this time in your word that you would help us to see how we need to respond, that you'd help us to believe what your word says about the virgin birth, about the gift of a righteousness that we don't have but we desperately need, that we would see Jesus in fresh and new ways as our righteousness, and that we would be able to find joy even in the face of our sin and our failure because our righteousness is not in us, but it's in heaven, and his name is Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would rescue us from being performance-oriented and feel like we have to merit your love and merit your acceptance and all those things, which certainly robs us of our joy. At the same time, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not confessing their lack of righteousness and not embracing you as their righteousness, I pray that you grant them grace to do that right now. May they see that only Jesus can make them righteous. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father, we just thank you. Please speak to us and help us to respond to your word as we need to today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.